Good morning, and a happy Mother's Day to the mothers here. Uh, you may be wondering if uh, it is time to cash out your life insurance, because here at New Hope it's Mother's Day and I'm preaching about motherhood. Uh, this has not traditionally been the way we do things. That's not because I have anything against mothers or motherhood. I have a mother, I made somebody a mother, and uh, many of my good friends are mothers. However, uh, frankly, this is a holiday that has not always been handled well in the church. Oftentimes, this can be a very difficult Sunday for women who are not mothers but want to be, uh, or women who were mothers but have, through tragedy or uh, miscarriage or abortion, have lost their children. Uh, this is a tough Sunday for people who have conflicted relationships with their mothers. I just watched a documentary about Stephen Sondheim, the, the uh, writer of uh, so many great musicals of the 20th century. He received a letter when he was a young adult uh, in which his mother informed him that having him was the worst thing that she ever did in her life. Now, Kara, my older daughter, has informed me that her life was better until I came along. Which is not logical, but, uh, but yeah, imagine, imagine what it's like to celebrate Mother's Day if you've been told that by your mother. But the, the most important reason that we have not generally observed Mother's Day in the way a church might be expected to is that it is not on the liturgical calendar. We have seasons like Lent and Advent, we have holidays like Christmas and Easter, and Epiphany, and Ash Wednesday, and Good Friday. What? Also, not on the liturgical calendar. Okay. We'll, we'll have the remedial class this summer for Ricky. And, and some may even have thought us especially hostile to Mother's Day when the, uh, the very first year of New Hope, we were going through 1 Corinthians, and it just so happened that on Mother's Day, our text was 1 Corinthians 5, which is the account of how Paul was dealing with the man who was sleeping with his stepmother. The following year, we were in the book of Judges, and uh, we had the infamous Kill Bill sermon. Uh, now, these were not planned, but they did happen to fall on Mother's Day, and so it may be that we were uh, came off as especially hostile early on. But I think we're now 11 years into this. We probably have a track record of not mishandling Mother's Day, I think, so hopefully we can get away with this. But the, the fact is, yeah, it's not on the liturgical calendar. And there are a number of holidays that are not on the liturgical calendar but are made a bigger deal of in churches that, than they ought to be, frankly. In some churches, Earth Day may as well be Easter. And uh, on days like that in such churches, one could think that we were being called to worship the creation rather than the creator. In some churches, the 4th of July is observed in a way that, frankly, is idolatrous. There are some churches that will put an American flag over the altar. This, I do not think, is what you're supposed to do. I'm as patriotic as anybody out there. I love my country. I'm grateful to be an American. But I do not think that we are supposed to treat God Bless America as a hymn. And yes, in some churches, Mother's Day is a holiday that is observed in that way. But there is quite a lot about motherhood that is good, that is honorable, that God created in fact, and one of those things is minivans. 
I don't think God directly created the minivan. Uh, but minivans, I think, are inextricably linked to motherhood. I, I, I think we would agree, we, Mary and I, now this is not just because this week has been an especially rough week for us. Wednesday night, uh, our van, uh, suddenly Mary was driving and all these lights came on and then she lost power and ended up on the left shoulder of I-95. Thankfully, she was safe. Uh, unfortunately, the engine in our van was not. So we are now on our third mommy-mobile. Uh, we got the first one when Mary was pregnant, and we talked at the time about whether we really were prepared to enter into the phase of life where we owned a minivan, and there was some adjustment. I remember not long after that, a bunch of us went downtown to this pool hall for a bachelor's day, or for a bachelor's party, and it, you know, it made sense that we would all go in one car, and the minivan was the only car that would fit everybody. But the vibe was just not right. <laughs> minivan, when you buy a minivan, you are declaring to the world that you have shifted to a different mode of life. Now, some people have difficulty with this. There are people, even people in our congregation, and I won't name names, who have what the automotive industry describes as a crossover. A crossover is a minivan that is six inches shorter. A crossover is a minivan for people who aren't ready to admit that they're driving a minivan. <laughs> I think a more suitable name for the crossover would be a comb-over, because it is, a, it is a lousy and obvious attempt to deny the reality that is before you. I don't mean to... No, I do. But yes, when you buy a minivan, you are admitting that you are shifting to a different phase of life. And frankly, you are shifting to a phase of life where it's not about you anymore. Now, a woman goes through that, of course, when she gets married. She learns to focus on the union of herself and her husband. That is part of dying to yourself and living to this new union that God has created. Uh, but there is a great deal, or at least there should be, a great deal of reciprocity in that. You don't get so much of that with a child, which basically sucks up all of your time and energy and libido and anxiety and gives you very little back except for cute smiles and doesn't even do that for about six weeks. And what we find here in, a, in, in the end of chapter 31 of Proverbs, the very end of Proverbs, is I think sort of a, a picture of motherhood in full flower. This is what it looks like when somebody has fully shifted to that phase of life where her focus is not on herself, but her focus is on what she is enabling, what she is bringing into the world. This is the end of chapter 31 of Proverbs. And Proverbs, throughout the, the book, uh, has talked about the importance of wisdom as opposed to folly. And, and I go back and forth on this. It may be that this last bit of Proverbs is really not about a woman of noble character, uh, but really it is a hymn to Lady Wisdom. So uh, elsewhere in Proverbs, like in chapter 4, uh, you, you have uh, wisdom personified as, as a woman. And uh, So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 6, uh, the writer says, Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. 
She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. So throughout Proverbs, we get the Lady Wisdom contrasted with Lady Folly, who is also beckoning to the young man, also seeking to entice him. And so it could be that this closing of Proverbs is, is a, a, a really is, is a hymn to what wisdom is able to produce. And, you know, the, the nature of the text, it's a highly stylized text. It's an acrostic poem, which means that each, each line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But it could well be that this is, in fact, a poem praising a woman of noble character. The Hebrew is Eshet Chayil. And that word Chayil could be translated as noble or wise, but you could also translate this as a power woman, a wife nobody is going to mess with if they know what's good for them. And this is a powerful woman that is being described here. I'll start in chapter 31, verse 10. An Eshet Chayil, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her women's servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. And her husband is respected at the city gate when he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. So when you read this poem, and you think about motherhood, I don't think it's June Cleaver that comes to mind, no? This is a woman who has fully invested herself in the life that God has given her such that she is contributing to the well-being of so many around her. It starts off talking about how her husband is full of confidence in her. He doesn't lack anything of value. She enables the well-being of her family providing food for them and, and for her employees. You see that in verse 16, she ensures the well-being of, of her own wealth. She is a capitalist. She invests the proceeds from her productive investments and in order to produce more 
She is enabling her own productive capacity. She's strong. She's healthy. Her life means that she contributes to the well-being of the poor, those who are needy among her. And then again, it circles back in verse 22 to her husband. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. I have to believe that's not just about fabric. But her husband not only is delighted in her in their private life, he is respected in public. He looks good because of her. And so because of that, she ensures the well-being of her future, able to laugh at the days to come. Because of her wisdom and her faithful instruction, she is able to contribute to the well-being of the people that she influences. And her children recognize this. They call her blessed. They don't say that their lives were better before she came along. And her husband, again, he keeps popping up in here as sort of a supporting character. Like, yep, I'm here. She's great. In fact, she contributes to the well-being of this city. Let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Her husband, her family, the people who work for her, the people she does business with, the people that live around her, the people that have to put up with her husband, all of them benefit from who she is. Because she has lived the kind of life, she's invested herself in such a way that she's not just looking after herself, but she is investing in the people around her. She has gladly entered her minivan and tricked it out with flames on the side. And this is, incidentally, not an unusual or an atypical picture of women that we find in Scripture. In the New Testament, we find people like Priscilla, who, with her husband Aquila, had a multinational trading enterprise. We keep seeing them popping up in all these letters and in the book of Acts as they're helping to plant churches and to, to establish these new movements of Jesus followers. We have Lydia, whom Paul runs into in Philippi when she's out uh, at the stream dyeing fabric with a very, very expensive dye. This is somebody who was, who's clearly accomplished in, in her field. We have Phoebe, who is a patron of Paul's, as we'll see next year when we get into the, the last chapter of Romans. She, she's the one who actually carries the letter to the Romans to the Romans from Paul. We even have Junia. Again, we'll run into her again. She's described as an apostle, honored and esteemed among them. So the slander that has often been applied to the church, that we don't fully honor women or that we don't recognize the full dignity of women, I think is thoroughly misplaced. It certainly has been true at times in our history, but it is not something that is founded in or rooted in Scripture. What we have described in Scripture is what we have not only described but honored and exalted is a femininity that is strong, that is effective, that is generative, that blesses the world around the woman and brings her and the people who are close to her great honor. And I think the reason that this happens is because what is portrayed is an eshet chayil, a woman 
of noble character who has devoted herself not to herself, but to the relationships and the opportunities that God has given her. And probably there's no better example of this than Mary, the blessed mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, this, this week, you know, here's a place where some of the cultural differences between our churches can get in the way of us seeing stuff we ought to. This, this week I was down at St. Mary's Seminary for a, a prayer service. They were dedicating a, a, a... They'll kind of take any excuse for a party. They're, they rededicated a room that they just renovated. And so they have a big prayer service and everybody gets dressed up. It was very nice. But, you know, in some of these prayers, they're praying to Mary. I had to kind of drop out during that stuff. But the rest of it, praising Mary, honoring Mary recognizing her as a model of faith is stuff that we can totally get on board with. In fact, you think about that classic prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace. It's not like the Catholics made that up. That comes straight out of Scripture. This is Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. That's where this comes from. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words, which is exactly the response everybody has when they are talked to by an angel. And she wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, how's this going to happen, Mary said. Because I'm a virgin, and I had health class, and I know how this works. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit. You all right there, Matthew? Matthew got that one a little bit late. It's, yeah. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your really old aunt is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is already in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And what does Mary say in response to this? I'm, oh, go ahead. Do you remember? Oh, she says that a little bit later. That's awesome, too. We'll get to that. She, what she says right here is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. And then, after that, when she sees Elizabeth and John, the baby inside of Elizabeth, leaps up in joy when she shows up, then she spits the Magnificat, which is awesome. I'll just read that. Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. That's the Magnificat. Sounds even better with somebody singing it, but not with me. Yes. 
Yeah, the doxology, usually after we say that, we then say glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. It was as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Thank you. But yes, this is her attitude, is I, I am the Lord's servant. I serve this God who I recognize as being faithful, who is coming through once again, who is coming through on his promises. He said he would. This is probably not how I expected him to do this because I'm like 13. But this is what he's doing. And so because I am the Lord's servant, I am going to say, may it be to me as you, his messenger, have spoken. I think this is the kind of attitude that enables a full-throated, no-holds-barred, powerful motherhood, which is not only to not have the focus on oneself, but really to have the focus not simply on the people that we are serving, but to have the focus on the one true God who sets this all up in the first place. Mary has an attitude that doesn't say, well, as long as this is going to work for my family. She says, God's doing something cosmic here. And if I've got a role to play, I'm going to play. And it's that kind of humility that engenders the kind of power that an Eshet Chayil has. Happy Mother's Day. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the wonderful examples of motherhood that we find here in the scriptures. And I'm reminded of that prayer at the end of the the Catholic wedding service where we say of the bride, may she follow the example of the holy women whose praises are sung in the scriptures. And I thank you for the examples of the holy women around here at New Hope those who are mothers and those who are not, who live in a way that is not only for themselves, but who bless others, who live in such a way that the well-being of those around them is developed, and who do this, not just out of a sense of doing good or not just so that people will notice, but they do this for your glory and for the welfare of your people. So we give you praise and gratitude for the women that you have given us. In Christ's name, amen.